now sitting at the wave table. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of The Wave Table. This episode is featuring Into Ash, who I actually found out lives in the same suburb as I do, which is yeah, pretty cool. That was interesting. <laughs> um, how are you doing today, dude? Mighty fine. I mean, I just came back from work, um, so oh, got all the blood flowing. So hopefully it's yeah. going to help me out. <laughs> I feel like it's nice when you get home and like there's blood flowing and you can just kind of like put all that into production. Push through. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you get shit knocked out really quick. Yeah. I feel like if it's a day you wake up and it's just production, production, like it can blow out really quick. Yeah. If you've got a schedule, schedules are really powerful things. Um, Yeah. It just sets you in the mood for doing things during set times, you know, when to do stuff, I guess. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I've hung out with you in Discord a bit, but we haven't really like yeah. had a full on deep chat or anything. So yeah. I kind of wanted to get an idea of like how you first got into music production and just like the whole journey up until where you're at now. Yeah. So it's interesting. It goes really, really far back. Um, I'd say probably like, um, primary school. I guess that's when music started in primary school. Um, production more so, I'd say around. My, f- my first year of high school, probably year seven. So I was 13 then. Cool. So production wise, so I guess throughout all primary school, I was doing um, music lessons within my school. Um, they basically offered it as this side program every few lessons. It always happened during maths, which I was proud of. Um, <laughs> I was taken out and taken to go learn instruments. It was pretty much just like a circle. You swapped around an instrument, you learned that like one week and you know, the next. That's really cool. Moving on to, yeah, moving on to the production side of things though, during, yeah, my first year of high school, um, which was, it was seven years ago, uh, um, 2014. So I guess that that was probably one of the golden ages of dubstep, which is my Mm. primary genre, but I was um, big on Minecraft and that was when it's, (laughs) I guess it's biggest play base was ever, um, was ever prevalent, I'd say. and I used to watch Minecraft Universe, who I guess is dead now on YouTube. But out of nowhere, he released a song. And it was Minecraft Universe Eclipse. That was the name of the song. And for someone like a, a Let's Player to be releasing full-fledged music, I was quite surprised. And, yeah, it was like a really 2014-ish dubstep tune. And I was so, like, intrigued by this. Like, geez, he doesn't even make music and he just punched this out. And in the comments, or like, I guess the description of that video, I'm like, what? like, yeah, who, like, how? <laughs> the comments said, made on Fruity Loops. And from that, the next day I pirated it <laughs> and I started to get to work. And it was a, it was a slow path. Um, so I pretty much, I started like, as most people do, um, samples and stuff and I'd say I was the only person that did production in my school. There's a lot of uh, instrumentalists in high school. So I guess that's when you really get the cho- like the choice later on to choose it as an elective and carry through with learning like the more in-depth uh, industry standards and stuff. But for production, I was really like stuck in this bubble of, um, I guess, uh, I wasn't very social. Like I didn't have social media at the start of high school um, during those early years. And I just started with messing around with samples, you know, downloading sample packs here and there, trying to find free ones and stuff. Um, and I did, 
I, I slowly learned my way through VSTs, um, like all plugins and stuff for maybe like five years until I'd say year 11. So I was 16, no, 15 in year 11. No, that doesn't add up. Yeah, 15, <laughs> 15, year 11. Uh, God, it's turned into a maths chat. Um, and yeah, with, with slowly progressing, I then found like, while being online, I guess, um, more of a community, a database, um, chatting with people and I slowly learned more techniques. That was, I guess that was probably the biggest, um, upbringing of tutorial channels as well. Right. Those years. Uh, people like rock and powered sound, which I don't really hate on because for beginners, um, getting information from a tutorial or at least from anyone, whether you're copying it straight from the books, you're still learning. And yeah. that's when you can apply that knowledge to other things. Um, and I think people should take no shame in using samples or plugins or, or so like or presets and stuff if you're learning. Um, I guess if you outright just use a sample in a track and you don't learn from it or change it, that's where it gets a bit iffy. But there's like there's a big um I say taboo on it. Yeah. Um but yeah, so from that point, yeah, it started um I guess just gathering like knowledge on how to use my door properly because I've, I've been using free loops ever since then so for about seven eight years now um and yeah just ever so slowly through 11 and 12 probably one of my biggest helps i guess um not idols uh my biggest motivation was my music teacher through year 11 and 12 um and he was a he was a classic jazz bass bassist i guess that's the word um, and yeah, he, he was all in for like weird and wacky stuff. He was like, oh, hippie to the max. <laughs> so his attitude to certain things, I would show him the craziest dubstep I could and he would froth it. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, from his style of jazz is, I'd say where my main strong points come from, because I would say I'm a self-proclaimed purveyor and advocate for thinking outside of the box um from him i was introduced to uh weird time signatures unconventional ones um and using those in music like my music it's become one of the most prevalent things and i really push like what i'd want to be known as a song that pushes for those things to become normalized really sick yeah, yeah i noticed as a, as a, oh, oh sorry yeah i noticed in um Bop that you kind of mm. draw people in with like the vocal sample, which is more of like a surface level bass music kind of thing. But then yeah. later in the track, it's just like bleepy and bloopy. I'm just like, holy shit, man. This is like such a good way to draw people in and show them like the, the yeah. alternate side of things. Yeah, that track was, um, it was really new to me for that sort of style because even that's a far cry from what I normally make. Mm. Um, it came up from watching one of my favorite artists. I was watching his stream, Kill Feed. Um, and from there, I learned some pretty interesting techniques. And again, learning from something and taking it and applying it in your own way. Um, from that, I created something influenced by his style. And yeah, that track, again, it's, um, his, he focuses on more of a rhythmic style and syncopation, I guess, um, putting things in places, uh, just like even if it's just a short one shot. And yes, again, taking that and reapplying it into that track. Um, 
it's got, yeah, the vocals at the start to give it, I guess, a structure. Like it's a bop, it hits yeah. on the beat. Um, and then, yeah, I was able to use that into the drop. Um, so like it's a, and then from there, the flow carries on. Yeah. And like you said, um, there's, there's not much, there's, or not, shouldn't be any shame at all, really, in learning from channels mm. such as Rocket yeah. Powered Sound because uh, I, I saw people hating on him the other day and I was like, yeah, like I can understand if you're at the point where everything he says is just like common knowledge to you. But yeah, as someone who learned a lot of my knowledge from him, um, it, it was, it did really help a lot. Like, yes, it was just like, copy this, do this, do this, you know, 37 on FM from B, 27 on the wavetable. But I did like just the repetition of watching all of his videos and recreating the patches really Mm. did help me to learn how to make sounds in Serum. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things people could rip into on Shane, specifically (laughs) what he does outside of music. Um, Oh, what does he do? (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah. Not safe for work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Apart from Shane Gregory. Um, yeah, rocket powered sound. Let's just put Shane to one side. I don't want to rip on him. This, that's not what this video is about. Yeah. Like as two dudes can agree, like it's where you learn. Yeah. You can't say that that's not teaching people. It's pretentious. It's pretentious as all hell, but, um, it sounds exactly like, oh God, I'm ripping into him. <laughs> um, conversation done. Um, yeah. Excellent sounds is also a really another really good one that pretty much does the same stuff. Um, mm. They go a lot more in depth though, and yeah, I feel like if you're ripping on uh, rocket powered sound, excellent sounds, and those kind of tutorials that just mm. if they if they're tutorials that help beginners, then you're kind of being a gatekeeper by ripping on them. Yes. So yeah, I'm. Please stop. <laughs> um, stop. Stop right now. <laughs> Stop right there. You're violating the law. <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's go back to Bob. I, um, yeah, I really thought that this track was like up there in terms of production. Like, I could not find a single fault on it. Like, I really liked your release on, um, Syndicate Kinship Volume 2 as well, but I felt yeah, like yeah. there was just like some kind of improvement between there i can't exactly put my finger yeah. on it but something went from like getting there to professional you know yeah i think the one thing i have been so focused on besides sound design in the past months is clarity right mixing and mastering it's something i have never done um before the past few months i would never master a song I would never gain stage a song like the tracks. I would never compress. I've never used a compressor oh my at God. all <laughs> within the past few months. Um, soft clipping, soft clipping, not at all. Um, so one of the biggest things that I have just tried and tried so hard to just um, push through and learn is, yeah, definitely mastering, which is so important because I have heard such great praise from the people in my like circle, as well as people own online, um, artists doing feedback streams. It is, it is like the final, the smoking gun mm. being, yeah, like top notch. Um, cause 
Yeah, it's like between kin. Uh, it was kin and bop. So kin, I struggled a lot. There was a dip in the high frequencies. Um, there was a lot of stereo width that shouldn't have been there. Right. Going to something like bop, there is a lot of um, thin noises like the zaps, which they are actually in mono compared to the stereo bass, uh, just to obviously not interfere with each other. Um, while occupying the same frequencies, they are occupying a different spatial area. Um, but again, it was, yeah, the biggest gap because you can definitely tell between those two pieces. I've spent all that time between those two, not on sound design, but on improving the my mixes clarity. That's actually a really good thing that you just mentioned. Uh, cause a lot of people will say you can't stack things on top of each other if they have the same frequency mm. range. But yeah. if one of them's wide and one of them's mono, they can actually complement each other really well. Yeah, and that that's something that a lot of people miss out on. They might go all stereo or <laughs> just not know what they're doing and being all mono. Um, which, yeah, it's a it's a strong thing to place things spatially in your mix. Yeah, mm-hmm. complementing whether they're in the same frequency range, complementing what's in the middle and what's wide, or you could have the same sound filling all of that space. Mm. And if you do have the same sound filling all of that space, sometimes mm. it's nice to duplicate it, have one mono version and then one slightly different stereo version. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of mastering, it, I know that like so many people do this, the whole like, this is my mastering chain thing. And then yeah, everyone yeah. downloads it and they're like, oh, it's not really Down working for me. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. <laughs> In terms of mastering, are there any kind of just general tips that you would like to provide? Yeah, so I'd I'd like to touch on like the thing where people say, oh, the mastering chain doesn't work for me um, before going into my process. Um, Yeah, like there's a a big assumption about that, that there's just one way to do mastering and you've got it. It's like your tracks are going to punch, they're going to be clear. It isn't. Mastering is a different process for every single track, and I've found that you can't just have a, sh- a surefire way of getting from, you know, 1 to 100. Um, and that's why, yeah, moving on to mixes, um, yeah, it's you have to have your track correct for it to work in the master, mm. which takes, I'm going to go a step back even to stereo imaging. Um, yeah, if your stereo is not correct, doing it in mastering, you can't polish a turd. Yeah. Um, you really have to have yourself set from the beginning to the end before heading into the final stage. Exactly. And yeah. And moving on to, yeah, like my certain things. So something I was never doing again, like I've never mastered really in tracks before. Um, the first step I really took to cleaning the mixes was high and low cuts. Something so simple that I've never done. Um, like low cutting where the lowest uh, bass note is. Some may th- think that's a sin because there's obviously going to be rumbles and stuff below that. But generally in my music, I can I can see on my spec- uh, like EQ spectrum that I'm not touching anything below that. So I usually high cut at my lowest fundamental of the yeah. track. Um, and then with the, yeah, the high pass, this was something I took from, I was given like uh, the recommendation of using a reference track which, again, something I've never done. Um, so I dropped reference tracks in, and I could see on the EQ track around, yeah, 16 kilohertz and above was pretty much null. It was non-existent. Oh, really? So, 
yeah, on most tracks I was checking. So I would add a, uh, a high shelf that actually drop it all the way down, give it a few dBs. Yeah. So in my spectrograph, um, actually I have to reverse this for the camera. So in the high end, there was then a dip and a small shelf at the bottom of high end noise around the 16 to 20 kilohertz range. So it was just cutting that down. It was still prevalent in the mix, but it was dropping the high end a lot. And I actually found that brought a lot more clarity to the mix. That's interesting. Um, I'll have to think about yeah. that. Yeah. Because if you, like I was like my understanding behind it is I was dropping in reference tracks and I was seeing it consistently through yeah. many of them. Um, so I just followed that and uh, my ears are untrained as they can be, but I could definitely hear um, it working for at least my style of music. Um, yeah. But yeah, down the train, um, I've learned to put things like, yeah, multiband compressors on the, on the, sorry, on the master bus. Um, I've been using OTT just very lightly though. Yeah. About, um, the upwards and downwards are pushed back to about 40 on both of them and the times at full, all these, all these bits and bobs numbers that probably mean nothing to many people. But, full as in um, all the way to the right or all the way to the left. <laughs> yeah. All the way one way. Um, <laughs> To obviously make it not sound like OTT, but be that little crunch of multiband compression. Yeah. And then usually to top it off just like a um, soft clipper, just to like stop it at a certain point, act as a limiter. Yeah. I actually yeah. found out that soft clipping uh, doesn't actually prevent stuff from clipping in the analog domain. Like it, yeah. it, it'll look like it's not going above zero on Ableton. But in yeah. Isotope Insight, it's peaking at like 1.6 yeah. dB. It's like really weird. So recently, I've had to start putting a true peak limiter after a soft clip. Yeah, just to check it. Yeah. Um, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, do you ever put like a little bit of reverb on the master? I can't say I've ever done that, to be honest. <laughs> no. um, unless I'm doing something in the actual master to create a song. So obviously um, you've got, I guess, different stylistic approaches. If it was something like a lo-fi track, yeah, mm. um, definitely afterwards I would add some sort of reverb to the entire track. Obviously low cut to not thud, like yeah. muddy up the low end. But yeah, definitely on like, if it was something stylistically different like lo-fi, I didn't have to think um, consciously about, yeah, things getting messed up. It would definitely have reverb or something on it. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything else you want to talk about in mastering before we go on to some different stuff? That's pretty much all that comes to me. Um, I'm an open book and I've I've just read every page. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was going to ask about how you went about creating your bleepy, glitchy stuff in Bop. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a story. Uh, In Bop, that sort of came from resampling a sound. So... Pretty much, I came about stretching it very, like, as wide as I could until I could see the actual changes in frequencies. So mm. it was like almost a square, square modulation, it looks like. Um, and with that, then being in those, you can actually see the waveform going up and down, peaking in certain frequencies. I was then taking that and then adding a um, effects rack on top. Obviously, it just boosts certain things. Um, I've never used frequency shifters before, but that was actually my first instance where I did use frequency shifting um, just to achieve um, a different tone rather than transposing it. Yeah. You're actually shifting the frequencies around. Yeah. Um, but it came from resampling. Cool. 
Yeah, I love how um frequency shifters and pitch shifters and stuff kind of just with certain tweaks, like if you're using the kilohertz one, there's like the grain size and jitter and stuff. Yeah. And it yeah. it just makes shit sound like so alien or robotic. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um so continuing on the kind of sound design stuff, I know yeah. that they're quite simple in essence. Um and Mansa showed me a good technique the other day, but I can't for the life of me remember exactly what he showed me. Uh, yeah. So in regards to white noise bases, uh, I was mm. wondering kind of what's your technique for that? Yeah. So there was, um, I have a go-to preset for like sub fuzz. That's what I usually like refer to it as. Um, and it is a, it's, Three, it's a fundamental sub and two overtones mm. and a white noise oscillator. And this is all within Serum. Um, so with those three playing a, um, their own volumes, usually the fundamental, sorry, the fundamental, the loudest and the overtones a bit quieter. Yeah. I then just have a tube distortion on top and a compressor with the gain all the way up. <laughs> and what that does is it just creates a nice fuzz and then post-processing-wise, I take out the sub because I don't want that interfering with my actual yeah. sub. However, I can't achieve that noise without the sub in the first place. So it's all a matter of post-processing that for me, but I basically go through getting a sub and distorting it, um, adding an OTT to bring through the top, like the top end of the fuzz and then um, low-cut it. Cool. Yeah, yeah so it's... My, yeah. It's so simple, but like, it's just like kind of the order in which you do things. And I think the, yeah, the whole, uh, the sub thing to really bring out that just fucked up sound is so essential because you would yeah. never think to put a sub in a sound and then completely remove the sub, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, when you're going for a distorted fucked up sound, you're like, okay, I just need to add distortion compression and fucking crank the gain way up on yeah. everything yeah it's there's this mindset that like you have to you have one sound and from there you can change it into oh, i don't, really don't know how to convey it but there are things that aren't seen on the surface it's like an iceberg there are sounds that are prevalent underneath all this bashing through vsts mm. um but yeah you really have to experiment with them in the first place and you know if you've gotten a, like a whole effects bus on and off button um, change stuff in your base patch and then change the effects rather than trying to make your noise after all of this crap. You try yeah. to change it through so many things. One click in your serum with all of those then processing that one change, it can be so drastic um, and you wouldn't think of it in the first place. Yeah. Really. You can literally make a whole sample pack out of just a post-processing <laughs> rack and then changing one knob in serum. Oh, yeah. OTTs. <laughs> Have you seen that thing how like um, OTTs aren't actually silent when they're turned off? Like if you stack up enough OTTs, they actually make noise. So yeah, fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> it annoys me. Um, I know on Ableton because I use both Fruit Loops and Ableton, um, but I'm primarily on Fruit Loops. Um, but yeah, in Ableton, I find that there's a lot less noise from OTTs. I could stack them up really high. Mm. But Fruity Loops, I feel like because it's an external VST, it's not an internally um, structured plugin. Yeah, it, it gains noise very quickly. 
Uh, either yeah. max I can have in Fruity Loops before I begin to hear ambience is about four. Oh, uh, that's fucking that's horrible. Annoying. Mm. <laughs> yeah, very. Um, I think there's like a, a phase pl- or multi-pass preset that pretty much does the same thing as OTT. So if you have multi-pass, that might be an interesting thing to look into. Yeah, to try into that, yeah. So I, I think the first time I actually ever heard your music was on Kinship Volume 2 because that's around the yeah. same time as I started the podcast. Oh. Uh, and I, I recently found out that you're actually on the A&R team for Syndicate, right? Yes, yeah. So that's fucking awesome, dude. Like, first of all, uh, it's yeah. I really respect people that like are kind of tastemakers in a sense and, you know, kind of get to choose what to show people. Um, yeah. Because knowing you, I know you're not going to choose like generic shit. You're going <laughs> to... Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to <you know>? really... <laughs> Really look for something special in yeah. what gets picked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you tell us what, what kind of stuff goes on behind the scenes in regards to A&R? Because pretty much yeah. all I know is that you look at emails and then you're like, oh, yeah, this looks cool, <laughs> like, this this uh, isn't so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the others within the A&R team could probably tell you now that I'm oh, slacking off uh, <laughs> quite badly. There's a lot of things on my palette at the moment, but yeah. So what is involved with the A&R um, in terms of yeah, syndicate, it's a lot of communication involved um, with both the artists and the team. So with when people do send us an email, there's usually like three outcomes. It is, um, there's a definite don't like it's not for us. Um, we usually will give constructive, uh, constructive criticism. Then there is, um, you know, bang on the money, this is something that we need. This person's gone places and we'd like to be the people to get them there. And then there is this sort of middle ground of, you know, it's good music, but it's just not at that, you know, level that we'd, we'd go for, that we'd accept. And with those artists, that's we don't want to turn people away. Being a part of a label, it is, um, it is working with the people around you because if you just shun everyone away and only pick the top stuff, I think there's, there's a two-way effect for it. You're only selecting such a small amount of music, but you're also giving this um, perception for people that are sending music that it's just not good enough if you say mm. nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's why, yeah, with a lot of it, the communication aspect is we give a lot of feedback and it may be back and forth for 10 emails. Um, you know, they send a version, we give constructive criticism and it goes sent back, gets sent back. Um, and yeah, it's, until we really work out, like, you know, this is, you've made, we, you can prove to us that um, you can go from what you gave us into something that's top notch. Yeah. Then we're, we're more than willing to sort of, yeah, accept it onto the label. That's really cool. I've never actually heard about a label that goes back and forth with feedback until they kind of get it right kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's pretty much just all binary. I'm I'm wondering now if there's many other labels there's out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know Hamish has talked a little bit about this, and that's that's something I think about as well. Um, Hamish, uh, I'm not going to say who was talking with, but Hamish Dreer. Um, yeah, he's yeah he was in contact with a label, and yeah, there's a lot of back and forth again with feedback, but it can get to a point where the label says, "Yeah, we just don't really like it," and you've been through all this work for nothing. 
So yeah. there is that one conscious thought usually that when we're going through these changes with artists, it, it's, is it going to get to a point where, you know, there's something new now and that's just not good enough. Um, but we really try to push them to the point that it is, um, that we can do it quickly, you know, like turn around on stuff and really get their, their brains thinking, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess it would really suck to make all these changes for a specific label. And yeah. then, and then they it, just it kind of, out. kind of reminds me of how there's like, it's not so much a thing anymore, but there used to be all these bands that would sign to labels and that would completely change their sounds. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. That, that's probably what happened with one of my, um, favorite artists, Ulla Seal. Um, we can touch on that later if you have a quest, like question about influences. Oh, we can go into that now if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I'd say with, um, influences, Ulla Seal was probably like, the biggest out of all of them. Uh, there was some tracks with like crazy syncopation, mm. um, like spacesuit, which actually goes on. It's like a, a half beat off the original song. So you got like chorus and build up and then the actual drops a half beat off. Um, and that was like, that clicked really great for me, but his tastes changed and mine, I was still stuck on his older stuff. And yeah, that really, I really sort of lost it, like lost what I was looking for in him, mm. his music. Yeah. Otherwise, I've sort of picked up my other two influences who were Dr. Ozzy and Killfeed, um, mm. both both for their rhythm, I'd say. Um, Dr. Ozzy's never really on a 4-4. Four, four. Um, there's always like, yeah, some off syncopation here and there, but like a rhythm, whether it's like a Latin almost beat. Same as, same as Killfeed. He's just got a certain... Um, there's a certain tack for doing, yeah, like the flow of the song with stabs yeah. here and there. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, rhythm is huge. Like there's so many tracks I hear that literally have the same exact rhythm. And it's like, oh, yeah. I've heard this track before. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, talking of Ulusil, I do, I really like the future rhythm kind of movement that he's, he's pushing. I, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that I like it because I never saw myself as one who liked melodic dubstep, but I feel like future rhythm is like just, it's like melodic dubstep is kind of really clean and future mel- rhythm has this like really dirty vibe to it. Like everything's kind yeah. of blown out. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's got a smeared vibe to mm. it, um, especially with like songs that focus on a vocoder. I feel like there's yeah. definitely like a smeared but almost uh, astral feel to it. Yeah. Mm. It would definitely suit my uh, name really well if I started making yeah, future Yeah, if you were into that, yeah. <laughs> um, so is there anything else you want to talk about in regards of influences? Like who was it that first got you into production? Oh, I mean, I could, I could say... Um, I could really say Minecraft Universe from that one right, video many yeah. years back, but I would I would go with classic Virtual Riot. Oh They're hell probably yeah! Probably the biggest inspiration to many. Um, like my tastes have moved on from what his sort of music was and is. Um, but there's nothing like listening to his first few tracks. Um, and also watching the classic Studio Time with Virtual Riot videos. Mm. There's nothing They're that amazing. beats watching those. Yeah. Um, and just being inspired from that, like as a, such a 
new producer. Yeah. And like the 10 minute drop videos and stuff. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were a big push for me to then try that. I feel like yeah. everyone after watching that video, they went, they went onto their door, opened it up and they're like, <laughs> I'm going to do something in 10 minutes. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> me. So kind of jumping back to syndicate for a second. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was talking to Manifex, he said that uh, when he's DJing, it kind of skews his production a little bit because mm. he hears the same kind of tracks whenever he's DJing, that when he goes into his door, he wants to make something completely different. Uh, yeah. Does, does being on an A&R team kind of do the same thing for you with listening to demos and such? No, I would say it almost does the opposite. Um, mm, okay. I feel like listening to what new up-and-comers have to show me, us, it makes me inspired um, because they're fresh on the scene. They've got a, they've got a new face to the game. Um, right. And they almost, it, it does the, I feel like it does the opposite for me. I hear new stuff that's, it's private, it's for the label. Um, yeah, that sort of inspires me to sort of take on doing something new as well, really. Have you ever been like directly inspired by a, a, a demo track? No, I wouldn't say so. Not in particular. <laughs> nah. Just covering your ass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there are a few that uh, would not inspire me. <laughs> if I could say that. Yeah. So you've, you've also been doing the, the 30 day challenge recently as yeah. well as myself, Drea, Scribe. And I think. I know um, what Vital Mode is going to start it at some point after he finishes uni, I believe. Yeah, that'll be interesting to hear his take. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if he's going to go down like the deeper, darker route at all. Because uh, me, like you, you've started doing kind of some more melodic stuff or some drum and yeah. bass, some cyberpunk yeah, stuff. Yeah, a lot of drum and bass, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I know you had to pause it for a bit because of like getting a new PC. Yeah. But um how do you feel like doing the 30 day challenge has been for you so far? I think I'm not really able to grasp the extent of how it's like changed me over mm. 12 days because I I got to 12 days before getting my new PC, building it up and I just felt away from home really on it, having mm. to set up all samples and stuff. But from what I could gather within those 12 days, yeah, it really pushed me, even after the first few, it pushed me into a space that I wasn't, like, normally producing. Um, I went straight from leapy stuff into a lot more melodic and vocal-based fa- uh, vocal music. Yeah. More choppy, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see where else you go with it because yeah, it's just yeah. So, so cool, like, seeing people experiment with all this different stuff but then not only do they experiment they have like 30 tracks that they can then flesh out yeah and release like what is that like it's like six seven eps or something if they yeah. want to yeah if all the tracks are good enough <laughs> i think the, the thing i'm most excited for is at the end of it doing a big mix of it all uh, as well as chucking oh. in a, a showcase mm. do like pretty much Dude, 50 minutes yeah maybe we should all get to d- together and do like a compilation album or something yeah just like all the 30 day challenges in one yeah (laughs) it basically just showed the the 
let me find the right word for it. Just show the decreasing mental state of everyone. <laughs> if that's one way to put it. Just a, des- a descent into madness and then you get brought up every 30 minutes. If we just do like one minute for every track, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. 30-minute um, journey through hell. <laughs> so uh, given that you've tried out like a bunch of different genres um, mm. within the 12 days so far, yeah. Uh, this might be a tough question, but if you had to stop making dubstep, what genre do you think would replace it? That's a very good question. I'm going to have to think for like at least five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> ah, I reckon Complexo, but oh, hell yeah. inf- influenced like not on dubstep synthesis um, with growls or heavy stuff. Um, I feel like more on the, oof, the timbre of it. Mm. So carrying over stronger elements, um, but in no way growls or the bleeps that I manufacture. I feel like it'd have a strong emphasis on the drums, but I, f- I definitely feel like slower uh, four on the floor stuff would definitely be my oh, yeah. forte. Yeah. I really love some good like 90 to 110 BPM walking pace stuff. Yeah. Fucking love that shit. Gets you going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this whole time I've been like looking at that desk behind you. Yes. And yeah. wishing I had one. <laughs> I wanted to ask, uh, did you make that yourself? Because it looks yeah. like it might have been. Yeah. Yeah, it was made myself. Um, pretty much $40 gum tree. T- like th- this was a very fun thing to do because before this it was I had a wooden trestle table. That was it. Mm. Um, and yeah, this behind me was pretty much just the love child of me being bored uh, during quarantine. <laughs> and so I scoured Gumtree for $40. For $40, I found a perfect table who actually happened to belong to a musician. And I told him what I was using oh, it nice. for. Like, I want to use, like, I would need a big table to fit big speakers on and a big, a big TV. <laughs> um, and he's like, yeah, man, all for it. Um, and then pretty much I looked at, you know, scoured, um, scoured a plethora of images just on like studio desks. And I ended up on just doing like, you know, that sort of curved in like a slanted design that I have right here. Oh yeah. That looks fucking sick, man. Um, I reckon like, I I don't know how much you like building stuff, but I reckon Mm. you could make like a business off, uh, building desks for musicians and stuff. If I had the tools and the time, if I wasn't preoccupied <laughs> with a billion other hobbies, it would be yeah. Because yeah. um, there's definitely a good market for that. There are people interested. Mm. But I, I want to almost take this to another point. Um, and that's like you don't need gear to be good. Yeah. Now, I have, I definitely don't have top of the top stuff, but people will look at what I have because I definitely post, um, like drool worthy images online because I've got RGB lights in here and such. Um, but yeah, there's a big sort of, um, again, I can't find the right word for it. Setup envy? No, um, uh, assumption. There's this assumption okay. that you need high end gear. Right. Yep. When you really don't, I have a lot of aesthetically pleasing gear. But a lot of my stuff is, yeah, still lower, to, mid to low and stuff. And I honestly sometimes 
I I don't feel like posting stuff online because I feel like it's really depreciating or at least um you know demotivating to people that look at something like this. Even though I handcrafted this for like a hundred dollars, um, you know, there are a lot of people that look at it and think I don't have that. All I have is a laptop, but that's all you need. Um, yeah, Akuma, who is an amazing up and coming producer, as well as Doctor Lobster, she is killing it and she's going to skyrocket. They they are both American producers, but they are they're working on minimal gear and their stuff is tenfold, tenfold what I'm doing. Um, and definitely for a lot of the other people around in our friend group, um, I'm not sure many people's setups since I haven't, um, haven't met many people or at least gone to their rooms. Mansa, he again works on only on a laptop. He doesn't have, um, studio monitors, I don't believe, or like a space where he can really feel the sound. He's really in his ears, um, like many people around. Yeah. And that like, there's a big, um, assumption, I guess, uh, agenda that you need all this gear when i mean 90 percent of my stuff's just for having the like a feel a nice feel in this room like aesthetically you don't yeah yeah there's definitely something to be said though for setting the atmosphere because like yes it's easy to get like stuck in the box and cabin fever and stuff whereas if you have like a really nice looking room and rgb lights and stuff it's yeah. like EDM time. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to find my phone so I could change the lights and just show you the atmosphere, but yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, speaking of Akuma, did, yes. did you see that um, that pan snare sample pack that she yeah. put out? Um, not only, I think she's had like hundreds of people buy it, mm. but like fucking Virtual Riot followed her from it. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking insane. Riot, um, as well as company she recently kind of like uh messaged him on twitter and now they've gotten talking as well as nazar who is new to nsd um he's been featured with sultan he's uh like i feel like sultan and him have really worked off each other and found their way into it um he's also very recently yeah um started supporting her yeah i saw his tweet like just before this yes it's pretty yeah. much like what the fuck akuma's <laughs> amazing go follow her <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that's why I'd, I'd really like to emphasize them, um, as well as pretty much everyone in my friend group. There are so many mm. people coming up, yeah. So uh, this is kind of the last thing, last main point that I want to talk about yeah, here, yeah. which is the Wob House. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for those who don't know, do you want to just take us through uh, what the Wob House is all about? And kind of, yeah. if there's any plans for after lockdown is over, what, oh, yeah. what's going to be going on? Most definitely, yeah. So, the Wub House, I'm going to use the love child term again. Pretty much, with Melbourne, it's got a very limited scene. Um, we were having shows maybe every month to two months, and that's one show. You look at places like uh, New South Wales with Chinese Laundry, they're having rhythm nights like consistently every weekend pretty mm. much. Um, and most other states, other states, Perth has a massive scene and, you know, we're very lacking here. We weren't lacking in people though. I think we were lacking in infrastructure for the scene. So I have, um, with my partner, her mother owns a warehouse or at least two warehouses. And the back one was usually only used for storage. So 
through Corbin because I knew Corbin had experience for running Mothership, um, which right. he ran those nights at Brown Alley. And we pretty much got together and we threw my birthday there as a start. Um, I had like two PA speakers, blown them out and stuff, um, overdriving them for everyone. Everyone had a blast of a time. And that was when like we saw everyone, we saw the space because it's got a kitchen, it's got a lounge, it's got like a green room, it's got a stage area. Like that night, it just sort of like for me at least, I could see it being something more. And then we sort of stepped up um, in our our materials. We bought new lights, new speakers. Um, we pretty much did the place up aesthetically. Um, we got DMXing so we could run the lights through the, like, the music and controller off a controller. Hell yeah. Um, and it, like that also went incredibly well. It's just now at a point of actually legitimizing Clubhouse. And... What we want this to be is not a nightclub. This is pretty much, it's a music venue for bringing the scene to like where it should be. Um, just to con- have consistency and honestly, just have a place where you can enjoy bass music, really. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's... So more like a, I feel like it's going to be more like a community rather than a place where you just go get sloshed and fucking. Yeah, I don't want just MDMA heads and shit (laughs) (laughs) going there to get a root. Like this, this is. I'd like to say for the boys, but it's almost for the people because it's not just the producers in the main circle or the DJs in the main circle. There are everyday people who love dubstep, but where do they go on a weekend? Do yeah. they go to a house club or an R&B club? Um, exactly. Yeah, there's, it's just this missing link, whereas everywhere else has it. You're not going to drive to New South Wales or to Perth every weekend. <laughs> so it, it's, it's almost a necessity for us to have to get to the next step, really. Um, and that's mm. why we'll, we've put our foot down to two people in the game just sitting down. And, you know, we, it was a pretty unrealistic approach at the start. We thought we were just going to be having uh, like underground raves. Um, and every step we've taken into looking into Apraham, Cos, liquor licensing, all these sort of different approaches and things, we've realized each step of the way that it's become more and more possible. Um, looking at each, each, I guess, uh, each pot, sorry, each problem, but then with each problem, seeing a probability. Yeah, I think that's a good kind of life philosophy as well. Um, you see all these things that they just seem to exist because they should exist. And yeah. like the, it almost seems like there's a disconnect between the consumer and the thing where the consumer doesn't know how the thing possibly happens or how it yeah. comes to exist. Whereas like you guys are doing, um, you know, you guys are actually taking the steps, looking into it. Um, yeah. APRA AMCOS, um, liquor licensing, all this I shit. Do. Whereas yeah. a, I feel like a lot of people are just like, okay, I can't do that because I'm not a fucking yeah. millionaire or something like. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, kind of going, going along those lines, um, on making it like an official thing. Mm. I talked to Corbin this uh, about this yesterday. Yeah. And I don't know if he brought it up with you, but um, 
there's like the whole Melbourne Arts Grants thing going on at the moment. Ooh, I don't know yeah. how. I don't know how that applies to venues and such. Yeah. But I feel like it could help you guys. So it's probably worth looking into that at least. Yeah, that's that's another thing. Um, there's a lot of creative things that do happen with like grants. Um, there's one I applied to earlier this year, which was more for producers and sound engineers. Um, I didn't get through, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things that people don't look at in terms of the government. There's like yeah. a lot of creative help here and there um, for whether it be businesses or personal projects. Um, whether it's uh, a function at your local library, a lot of those happen, like um, DJ ones where they bring in someone who is a bit um, more popular and you can learn in little community things. Whether you think it's cringe and there's 12-year-olds there trying to learn DJing, you're still <laughs> going to learn from it. Um, and there's a yeah. lot of things that go on, like grants as such. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyone who's listening who lives in like the inner suburbs of Melbourne, definitely look into the arts grants. Um, I looked into it yesterday, but unfortunately, I'm quite far outside of the radius that they provide to. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know where the Wub House is exactly, but it might be inside the radius. So Office. we'll see. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh Odds along road. <laughs> okay, well, fuck that grant off then. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at least there's going to be something local for me. That's yeah, the, that's also something I like to touch on because we don't know if this opportunity is going to last forever. Because this is, I am technically like subleasing from a partner's mum. There's, in terms of location, there's all these complications. Um, because mm. we're pretty much subleasing. Even if this doesn't happen, going back to how to, it's a necessity, um, we've learned so many things in how to like operate such a business that a venue is such a small thing to us. That's not that's not that big right. of a problem. So whether this fails, um, we're going to pretty much come back twice as hard because we'll be know know what we're looking for, and pretty much yeah, you can expect the basin to skyrocket. Hell yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, to put it in production terms, it's like you guys have learnt the production knowledge and you've got a laptop. Yeah. And now it just, it doesn't matter where you're yeah. sitting. You can still use your laptop. Exactly. That's fucking great. I love it. Um, okay. So let's wrap this up with one yeah. final question. And you might have heard it before, but um, let's, uh, I want to hear your one tip if you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing. Ooh. In regards to producing, what would it be? This is the one question I feared the most. Um, <laughs> this is, there's so little I would tell myself. I honestly feel so grateful for the journey I've had. Um, hmm. I would have told myself as much as I praised it earlier, I would have said get off sample packs and, um, mm. and stuff. Uh, I feel like I should have developed my own sound a lot earlier, um, listened to a lot more influences really, as well yeah. as how I am now, like I said, self-proclaimed purveyor and um, of just thinking outside of the box. I was stuck inside the box for so long. Um, yeah. I, and that's why I want to really advocate to people trying to produce now. It is stop thinking about rules as, as generic as it sounds. There is such a stigma. Oh God, that's the word I've been trying to find for like every instance. Um, there's <laughs> such a stigma 
around using unconventional time signatures, especially since Polyrhythm was released. Um, now everyone thinks you're trying to copy that song, but it exists. It's, it's not this nuance in the void. It is something that exists and people don't use it. Um, changing time signatures, change, changing tempo, changing genres. That is what I would tell myself. I would tell myself to do everything that isn't being done. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we, we were watching, um, Muhammad last night, mm. uh, producing a, a track that's in like the key of A. Yeah. And yeah. He was like, he was like, oh, maybe I should just, you know, pitch up the intro and then make a different drop that's in a different key. Yeah. But I was just like, yeah, A doesn't hit the hardest, but it still sounds great. You know, like, yeah. it doesn't fucking matter, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even, even dissonance, like you said, just have the drop in a different key. That's something that isn't also done. People mm. can tell you that that's so wrong, but if it's with intention, it doesn't need to sound right. Mm. Dissonance exactly. exists for a reason. If yeah. you, if you do something with intention and someone tells you it's wrong, yeah. then you can just be like, this dude doesn't know. <laughs> Unless you are clearly insane and have a hundred percent wet reverb on your mask on like on your face and stuff. <laughs> There is a cl- there is a clear line, and I will quarantine for another six weeks away from any person that does that. But, yeah, there there are certain things that you shouldn't be restricted on, and there are like mm. there are not enough people doing those things. And if it means like if you change a time signature and it's not like mm. as headbangable, then so be it. Yeah, you can still make a great track even if you can't really headbang to it. Like yeah. Uh, do you think I made Lurid Loser shout out to that track that has like three time signature changes and three tempo changes <laughs> to be played out? No, it should be experienced. <laughs> Nothing exactly. needs to be played out. And that's, again, um, the thought that you have to make music for crowds when everyone says, and this is absolutely true, make music for yourself. Mm. Mm. There will always be enough music to play out for crowds. Yeah, there's always <laughs> enough rhythm. All right, kids. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, dude. Oh, it was a pleasure. pleasure to finally have you on. Yeah. yeah. So, get sorry. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead and check out Into Ash. There'll be a link in the description to his socials and music and all that good stuff. Yeah. Thanks again cheers. for joining me, dude. Thank Peace. you all for listening. And cheers. Thank you, Ben. Later. <laughs> Yeah.